Well, good morning, Christ Central. I'm thankful to be here with y'all today. Um, as I was telling, sharing with some folks, when I walked in, I consider myself a Dermite. So it's good to be back here in the Bull City. I was born at Durham Regional Hospital and uh, went to Durham School of the Arts way back in the day. And my mom was a public school teacher for over 20 years here, right around the corner at C.C. Spaulding, actually. So when people ask me where I'm from, I tell them proudly, I'm from the Bull City. So, and this is my second time with you guys here at Christ Central, once again with the opportunity to bring y'all God's word, and I'm thankful y'all would have me back again. Early this week, uh, Daniel sent me a text and said, hey man, what's your sermon text for this week? And I told him I was excited to uh, preach a message from the story of Joseph in Genesis 50. But then some things happened that led me to change my mind to the Revelation 21 text that I'll be preaching this morning. So what happened to make me change my mind to switch up the text last minute on Daniel? Well, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana happened. Shot dead by a police officer on camera. What happened? Philando Castile in Falcon Heights, Minnesota happened. Shot dead by a police officer on camera. What happened? Police officers in Dallas, Texas happened. Shot dead by a sniper again on camera. That's what happened. And what happened next is that I cried. And then I cried again. And then I cried again. Then I became afraid. And then more afraid. And then even more afraid. And then I got angry. And more angry. And even more angry. That's what happened in a matter of days in my world, in my country, in your country, in your world. And that's what happened. Then I realized that someone like myself, a a well-trained, ordained minister of the gospel, who proclaims the truths and realities and the hope of the gospel as a vocational calling, began to feel the hope which I preach being sucked out of my soul. I began to struggle, brothers and sisters, to hold on to hope in this hope-sucking world. Some of you, too, experienced this hope crisis this week. And even if it wasn't the hope-sucking events of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or Falcon Heights, Minnesota, or Dallas, Texas, that got you. Something, or dare I say, some things in your life, in your world, this week, this month, this year, maybe even this morning, has tried to suck your hope. How can I be sure? Well, because, brothers and sisters, deep down, we all know that we are all broken people living in a broken world. From natural disasters, floods, landslides, earthquakes, and hurricanes that have killed thousands just in the past year, to the recent uptick in international terrorism, 
Murderous bombings in Istanbul and Amsterdam and Brussels and Baghdad. We're living brothers and sisters in a hope-sucking world. And here in our own nation, I turn on the news, and it seems like all I see is violence. Pulse, nightclub, violence. Domestic, violence. Gang, violence. Police, violence. Violence sparking more violence. We're leaving people of God in a hope-sucking world. And all this is to make no mention of all the other hope-sucking issues that plague fallen humanity, hope-sucking issues in our relationships because we're crooked people trying to love and be loved by other crooked people with crooked hearts. Hope-sucking issues with our bodies, arthritis, autism, AIDS and HIV, infertility, miscarriages and all other kinds of hope-sucking issues in our human experience. Injustices, sexism, classism, racism, and all the other isms. Abortion, displacement, sex trafficking, mass incarceration, homelessness, addictions, abuse, fatherlessness, guilt, shame, fear, manipulation, rejection, outrage. Open your eyes, y'all, and you'll see we are living in a hope-sucking world. Amen? A dark world, so dark that it's often hard to see the light. A dark world, so dark that it's hard to see God's good through the tinted glass of sin and Satan's bad. This week, I groped my way through this thick darkness and reached for the only light that can pierce through this darkness, and that is the light of God's Word. The gospel message, the good news of the promise of the ultimate renewal of all things in the end, in the new heavens and in the new earth. And my prayer is that in the next few moments that I have with you this morning, that the Lord would be so gracious as to provide us all with a fresh vision of the consummation, the grand finale, the end, if you will, of our hope so that we can walk courageously into whatever darkness lies before us as we continue to sojourn through this hope-sucking world. And so with that, we now travel to the future, to the end, to the end of history, to the end of God's Word, to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. This prophetic and apocalyptic book, Revelation, was written by one of Jesus' closest disciples, the Apostle John. And John was a man who was well acquainted with hope-sucking experiences. See, John's faithfulness to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ had landed him in exile on a small Greek island called Patmos. And it's from Patmos, from exile 
from the margins of Roman society that John pens this letter of Revelation to the church to encourage them then and all of us today to hold on, to hold on to the faith, to hold on to redemptive hope in this hope-sucking world. And in this letter of Revelation, John declares that I've seen the end. I've peered down the dark tunnel of history, and I saw at the end the bright light of God's ultimate victory over all that assaults us and our hope in this world. And in our specific text this morning, Revelation 21, 1 through 6, John goes on what I would describe as an artistic rampage, dipping his paintbrush in the brightest colors to paint for God's people a picture of the glorious scene of how our story ends. And what John sees here at the end, brothers and sisters, is number one, a renewed environment. Number two, a renewed people. And number three, a renewed relationship. A renewed environment for a renewed people to enjoy a renewed relationship with the Lord forever. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, please look with me to Revelation 21. Uh, it's up there on your screen as well. 21, 1 through 6. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold i am making all things new also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is the word of the Lord. Here at the end, John looks around and sees that everything has been renewed. And in verses 5 through 6, John tells us exactly who is responsible for making all things new. He says in verse 5 that, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The Lord himself is making all things new. And the Lord describes himself in verse 6 as what? The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. You Greek scholars out there will know that Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last. 
And naming the polar opposites of something, the, the beginning and the end, the alpha and omega, is a way of saying that and that and everything in between. It's like when we say I search high and low for something. We mean we look there and there and everywhere in between. When my wife and I got married, we exchanged some vows. And some of those vows were that we would stay together, what, through better or worse through richer or poor, in sickness and in health. And what we had in mind was not just those extreme life situations, but also everything in between. So when God says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, he's saying, I'm the first and the last and the all-encompassing reality. And because I'm the Alpha and Omega, I'm telling you that you can write this down Verse 5 says, for these words are trustworthy. These words are true. In other words, the Lord declares that because I am the great eternal God, you can trust what I'm promising. It will come to pass. My promise is trustworthy. My promise is true. I shall renew. And I'll begin here at the end the Lord reveals in our text, by renewing the environment. Now, remember our environment, earth, and all that is in it was originally all good without a need of renewal. Y'all know the story, Genesis 1, in the beginning, with, what, with the boom of nothing but his sovereign divine voice, God declared and created the earth and everything that is in it out of nothing and in six days. Earth and space, time and light, the atmosphere, the sun, moon and stars, the sea and its creatures, birds and land animals. And last, but certainly not least, on the sixth day, God made something like him in his own image, in his own likeness, endowed with authority over all his perfect creation. On the sixth day, brothers and sisters, God created man. Humanity, male and then later female, Adam and Eve as the crown of his perfect creation. And Genesis 2 says that God stepped back on the sixth day and looked out at his creation and said, this is good. As a matter of fact, this is very good. But the earth, this world, this environment didn't stay very good for very long. God's good creation broke bad when sin broke in and contaminated creation's perfection. Genesis 3 teaches that Satan in the form of a serpent does what? Meets Eve in the garden, you all know the story, and tempts her to reject God's commands and Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. And God comes to them and tells them among other things that cursed is the ground, cursed is the earth, this world, this environment because of your sin. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation, the whole environment groans together, it says, with pains like childbirth. 
Every planet and galaxy, soil and water, pine trees and grapevines, seaweed and killer whales, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. All sit on the edge of their seats waiting anxiously for the curse to be reversed. And in Revelation 21, here at the end, we finally see the reverse of the curse. Here at the end, the Alpha and Omega renews the environment. John says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. All that threatens God's people and, and their relationship with him and their relationship with one another here at the end will be destroyed. And throughout the book of Revelation, these threats are symbolized uh, through the imagery of the sea. Understand that the sea in this ancient context represented darkness and danger and death. Therefore, John says in verse 1 that when he peeks at the picture of the end of our hope, the sea, all that threatens us, was no more. And no more sea means no more natural dangers or obstacles to flourishing and to unity. Landslides and earthquakes, state lines and party lines, national borders and racial barriers will be no more. In the end, the Alpha and Omega will completely renew this environment. And our text goes on to say and reveal that the reason that he's going to renew this environment is so that it will be right for us, his renewed people. John says in verse 2, if you'll look there with me, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven for, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now understand, holy city and New Jerusalem are, are two ways that Scripture describes the people of God, the, the church throughout the ages. And, and John says at the end, when he sees God's people throughout the ages all gathered together, they appear as a bride. And this bride, uh, John would describe earlier in chapters 5 and 7 of Revelation as being from every nation and tribe and people and language. That means that this bride will be part Greek and part Korean, part Kenyan and part Mexican, black, brown, white, and everything in between. This bride will speak English and Spanish, French and German, African, Zulu, and Mandarin, and everything in between. And John says in verse 2 that when he sees this multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial, multilinguistic bride, she's adorned for her husband, her husband, who is Christ Jesus. You know, as uh, Daniel alluded to earlier, as pastors, we often get uh, asked to uh, officiate, uh, not officiate, you don't officiate a wedding. Do you officiate a wedding? Sounds like a sports analogy, okay? <laughs> you get asked to do weddings. How about that? 
And you know what's one thing I've noticed? It is hard to find an ugly bride. (laughs) Think about it. I mean, everyone looks good on their wedding day. You might not have been all that on the day before, (laughs) and you might not be all that on the day after, but on that day, doggone it, you look good. And what John says is that here at the end, this multi-everything bride is done up to level 10. She's gorgeous, stunning, a raving beauty. As it says, she's adorned for her husband. And see, back then, kind of like today, the bride wouldn't just dress herself. See, in this ancient culture in preparation for the big day, the the bride would receive the equivalent of the luxury spa package. She would be bathed and oiled and perfumed and groomed and dressed in beautiful attire. But get this, the bride wouldn't do this preparing herself. No, it would be done to and for her. See, on that great day, brothers and sisters, here at the end, we'll be dressed to the nines, sharp as a tack, cleaner than a board of health, as my granny would say. But it won't be because we bathed or oiled or fragranced or dressed ourselves. We'll be so fresh and so clean, gleaming in the blinding white attire of unspotted holiness and righteousness only because we were washed by another. Our old, filthy, soiled garments of sinfulness and brokenness will be once and for all finally and permanently bleached by the blood, by the blood of Jesus. As the hymn goes, what can wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And here at the end, after Jesus washes and dresses his bride in the gown of righteousness, Jesus then turns around and presents this perfect bride, this multitude of his renewed people back to himself at the marriage altar. So now the atmosphere, the decor has been set by the renewed environment God's people have been renewed as a perfect bride. And now here at the end, the marriage ceremony commences. And a renewed, eternal, and intimate relationship between God and his people begins. John says in verse 3, if you would look back there with me. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God himself will be with them. 
we all know what it's like to hold on to something that reminds us of someone we love, but that's no longer with us, right? A couple of years ago, my mother gave my wife Charlotte a, a serving plate. It was a simple serving plate, but a very special serving plate, a serving plate that my mother had been holding on to that was her mother's, my grandmother who was actually killed in a tragic car accident when I was in college. You know what it's like to hold on to a letter, or to a picture, or to a serving plate, someone whom you love who may no longer be here. You cherish these things. You hold on to them tightly, but I'm sure you'd give the items back without even thinking, to have the actual person back there with you. Am I right? Brothers and sisters, the Lord has given us all kinds of things in this life to know and to experience and to remember him with. He's given us nature, which scripture says shouts out his glory. He's given us his spirit to lead and to comfort us. And he's also left us a note, his words and promises to us in the form of Scripture. And we should absolutely be grateful for and cherish all of these things. But how many people know that nothing compares to being with Jesus himself? Because when we finally see Jesus face to face, when we experience a unfiltered, renewed relationship with Jesus, all wrongs will be made right, and all that is sad will be made untrue. How do I know? Because verse 4 in our text tells us so. Look there with me. John says that when God's people are finally with God himself, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, here at the end, at the consummation of our hope, Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I cried when I got the news that my grandmother had gotten killed in a car accident. You don't think of your grandparents going that way. I cry sometimes when my own sinful nature and sinful inclinations overcome me. I cry sometimes when I turn on the news and I see all the hope-wrecking mess that's going on in our world. Oh, but Jesus, Jesus promises us that he will in the end wipe away every tear from our eyes. Every tear, brothers and sisters, not a few tears, not most tears, but every single tear that this hope-sucking world has extracted from your eyes. The imagery here is of Jesus taking his thumb and wiping it away. And there'll be no more new tears either. John says, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. That means that everything that would cause us tears in this life, tears of sadness, will be destroyed. 
sinful inclinations and evil temptations destroyed. Systematic injustices destroyed. Disease, disorder, despair, depression, even death itself will be destroyed. It says that death will be no more. And with all that mess out of the way, we will finally be free, as our text says, to drink from the spring of our renewed relationship with Christ forever. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Here in the end, our relationship with God is perfectly renewed, and we will have full access to the spring of living water, which means we will experience complete joy and pure pleasure and peace in the presence of Jesus Christ forevermore. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who have staked our eternal hope in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone, this is how your story ends. So as we tread back into that hope-sucking world, as you go back out there to honor your call to be salt and light in the current darkness of this country, of this city, in your communities, be encouraged, be empowered, be hope-filled, remembering how your story ends in a renewed environment as a renewed people, enjoying a renewed relationship with God forever. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, we praise you just for showing us the end. We pray that you would Press this vision into our minds. Lord, take the glorious image of your renewed creation for your renewed people to enjoy a renewed relationship with you. And, and Lord, tattoo it on our imaginations. Keep it on our minds constantly. And Lord, for those that are here that you know are not currently part of your bride, call them, Lord. Give them faith to believe so that they too can have an unshakable hope in this hope-sucking world. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.